Everybody, good evening, everybody. You should have received two packets. Bo's been handing them out. Does anybody not receive two different sets of notes? If you didn't, raise your hand and then he'll get them to you. Oh, sorry. Yes. But they're not stapled together, so there's two different packets. Or if you have your Bibles, would you open up to Genesis chapter 1? I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll, we'll pick up where we left off last time together. Please join me in prayer. Lord, it's a gift for us to be able to call upon you because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ shed on our behalf. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the conquering king who rose from the grave, have ascended to heaven, and poured out your spirit. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for the gift of your word, and and we pray that this evening you would help us think well together about what your word says against the tides of what culture says about what it means to be human. And as we step back and look at the forest and then zoom in and look at the bark on the trees and everything in between, help us to think well and wisely about what it means to be us. And knowing what it means to be us, how to live faithfully before your face in this fallen world, living faithfully with great joy in Jesus, doing good to others and praying and working to see the lost saved and the church built. So to that end, Lord, would you bless us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Does anybody remember what page we ended on last time? Was it 19? Twenty, Danny? Okay, Okay. so this evening, so we're going to pick up on page 20. Uh, before we do, I want to remind us again, I had you turn to Genesis chapter 1, I want to read verses 26 down to the end of the chapter. These verses is the acorn that grows through the Bible into the oak tree that it is of understanding. In other words... Who we understand Christ to be, who Jesus is, what he does for us in his gospel, his free grace, salvation that he gives to us, and more. It all begins here in these opening words in the first chapter of scripture. So let me go ahead and read beginning at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. 
and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So we have spent our time together so far, other than the introductory evening, looking at how uh, the world presents to us what it means or the conflicting views that the world gives of what it means to be human. We have spent time looking at what it means to be human, namely that we are made, we are created in the image and likeness of God. This outline up here, you don't have in your notes, but this is the big picture forest of where we're going in our time together in this class. So point number one, which we've just finished last time, that was took 19 pages for us to, to determine that the definition of what it means to be human in scripture is equal to being created in the image and likeness of God. We went into great detail of what that means. What we're doing now on page 20 and as we move forward in our time is we're now looking at additional details that begin here in the text I just read from Genesis 1 and then we'll see how they unfold across scripture. So tonight we're moving into this. To be the image includes being embodied. And after we spend time there, number three, to be the image includes being gendered. Number four, to be the image includes ethnicity. And then five, to be the image includes being commissioned. And that's this last one is the job description where we're going to pick apart what it means to be fruitful, multiply, fill, and subdue the earth and exercise dominion over it. And the implications of what that has through the flood, post-flood, and beyond, what God's intention for us to actually act out, as it were, or to live as his image bearers. That's where we're going this evening. One thing I want to give you. We... We spent quite a bit of time last time together um, talking about and trying to demystify the mystery of what it means to be in the image and likeness of God. So one of the packets you have that we're not going to go through, I went through this week and I pulled together and printed out for you every single text in the entire Bible that explicitly references being made in the image and likeness or image or just likeness of God. And then I arranged them for you um, by topic so you can see how it flows together and, um, and more. So you can look at that and then if you have questions, you can email me or ask a question on a Sunday. But we're not going to go through it now. We have to move forward. That's what this extra packet is. You can add that as a supplement to your notes. All right, so we've moved on from image and likeness of God. Now we're moving to point number two, top of page 20. To be in the image and likeness of God includes being embodied. Okay, question before you look at the notes that you've already read. What are some ways that the world would address the question of, of why we have bodies? How, how might the world answer that in different ways? Why we have a body? 
Okay, evolution. Meaning what, Sam? I mean, I know what you mean, but meaning what, Sam? Yeah, so from billions of years and random chance, poof, here we are through the reverse of entropy. We've arrived here and more. Yeah, that's that's one thing why we have, have bodies. Any other ideas, Mandy? Okay, nothing but animal material. So, the, so that would be like a purpose of the body. Our purpose in this world is to do whatever pleases us most. A hedonistic perspective. Yeah, those, those are... Those are Yeah, so, so with the evolutionary idea, we are apex predators in the sense of intellect and technology, and so we are survival of the fittest. What are the implications of an evolutionary idea of speciation among humans and race? Anybody want to pull that string? Yeah, Mandy. Uh-huh. Everyone turns into Hitler and Margaret Sanger. That's absolutely right. It's absolutely right. So those are some. So so those are some ways the world would say the body is in for, uh, for. How about this? How about the importance of the body? So we talked about. Uh, uh, Sam, you didn't say this, but electrical impulses. We we are meat bags. Nothing more than electrical impulses. Um, so how about the 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 spiritual part of us? How might people address? that part of us so scientific materialism is going to say there is no spirit to you you're just electrical impulses but not everyone agrees with that so what what might other people say to that sam the other sam hang on sam thanks for sitting by each other guys (laughs) that it's useless or something to escape your body yeah okay why do you say that or something that's less than so, like they say that there's a separation between spirit and body, and your spirit is your true self, and your body is just something, a casing for your spirit that um, could or not be in line with what your spirit is, and yep. so it's something less than your spirit. Really good. That, that, is, that right there is the prevailing notion of our Western age. That, that's it Exactly. Um, any other, anybody other comments adding to that? What, what about the um, immaterial part of us? I'm sorry, hang on a second. Let me give you this. We're recording as we got to get a mic. Well, the Christian scientists would believe that there is no, it's no reality. Kind of like mysticism where there is no reality. It's, there's no evil, there's no good, uh, there's no pain. No sickness, anything like that. It's all a function of what we're thinking. Yeah, yeah. Any, any others? Maybe one more. It's also reincarnation. In your past life, you might have been a bird. This life, you're a human. Who knows what you'll be in the next life? That's right. This new age kar- karmatic fusion 
of reincarnation and more. Yeah, so, so really, whatever I am internally is superior to what I am externally. The immaterial is more important than the material and, and more. So those are all different ways the world approaches that. So you can see there on the top of page 20, we have that there's scientific materialism. We are evolved and evolving animals. We're the product of time, chance, and electrical impulses. There's no true meaning or significance to humanity other than being apex predators and what is socially created. Social Darwinism would equal survival of the fittest of the species at the individual, tribal, national, and racial levels. If you're going to follow evolution and scientific materialism to its logical conclusion, that's where it leads. So the physical body is all there is and nothing more. So um, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Not saying that's what Solomon thought he said that, but he wasn't a scientific materialist. Or the opposite, which we've looked at earlier in our class, is this resurgent yet ancient neo-paganism, neo-gnosticism. Those words are so important, you have to become comfortable with them. Um, without, if, if you did look, you can't say it. But if you remember from looking in the past, what, what, could someone define what the essence of Gnosticism is? Secret knowledge, yes. The essence of Gnosticism is secret knowledge. That's what, um, and, and the way that it's said today is that we are spirit beings of some kind, housed in temporary bodies, and ultimately connected to the immaterial forces of the universe. It's a very broad definition, but it would do well in Sedona. It would do well in Hinduism. It would do well in different places as to what it means to be Gnostic. And this is an ancient belief. And the, re and, and the reason I bring this up, and the reason this is a valid definition, is because this is where the human mind goes in the absence of biblical revelation. We either go to trusting ourselves in one of two ways. We trust ourselves that we are scientific materialists. We deify science. We deify matter. The body's all there is. Do what you want. Or in the absence of an overarching meta-narrative, the Bible, then we become Gnostics and we think that really what's inside of us is superior to the outside of us. So, so on a Gnostic idea, and what you, you see this all over social media, all over our world is that the spiritual part of a person is who and what they really are and has priority of the, over the physical. So, Sam, you said it really well a few moments ago. It's, it's who I feel that I am on the inside is my authentic self, and therefore I will live a subhuman life insofar as I don't let my inner self out and any way that the world... The cultural hegemony, remember from first class, $5 word, in any way that the world tries to suppress or oppress or conform me into its image is an evil because it's suppressing how I feel on the inside. That is why in the first and second class we talked about how Christianity and the Christian norms that have informed the West for increasingly across 2,000 years, are the shackles to be thrown off because they're repressive, especially when it comes to, well, having a body. 
and being gendered and sexuality and more, which we'll see in the coming weeks. But what does God say? So Genesis chapter 2, you can turn there if you want. I have the text there in your notes for you, although I love the sound of Bible pages turning. So listen to what the Bible says about what it means to be us. Genesis 2, 5 through 8. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plants of the field had yet sprung up, for Yahweh God had not caused it to rain on the land, And there was no Adam, there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then, verse 7, Yahweh God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed notice how God made the garden and then put the man in it after he had been formed those details so if you look at verse 7 God created man to be a union of material and immaterial of physical and spiritual of hardware and software Saying the same thing three different ways. If you notice what he did was Adam was not complete with just a physical body. So he, he forms man with the elements and minerals and dust of the earth. Forms him. Here's his organic compound, this body laying there. But it was not yet Adam. It wasn't Adam yet. It wasn't man until God did what? Until God breathed the breath of life into the man, and then the text says, then he became a living creature. It's all there in verse 7. There is a a very fun, interesting wordplay in the Hebrew going on here when it says God formed Adam, Adam, from the dust of the Adama. The word for ground in Hebrew is Adama. If you notice, it's the exact same word with just the ah sound, A-H at the end of it which shows the earthiness of being humans. We are made from the Adama, or at least the first man was. So the key thing to recognize is that Adam did not exist previously, this is key, as a spirit. Nowhere in the Bible does that idea ever come from anywhere it is made up nonsense or borrowed from other religions that all people are these uh, pre-existent eternal spirits and then God made Adam and then and then God put the the everlasting spirit of Adam into the body of Adam then he became a living creature no Adam's spirit did not exist until God unified his spirit with his body so what does that do to the idea of uh, reincarnation in all its infinite cycles It destroys it. There's no place in the Bible for that idea in any way. If there's anyone who thinks that, it's just smuggling in and accreting or sinking other religions with what the Bible teaches. So, Adam did not, 
exist previously as a spirit to eventually be placed in a body. He simply did not exist. There was no Adam until God unified body and soul or spirit, material and immaterial. So for Adam to be Adam and for him to bear the image and likeness of God, God made Adam a union of body and soul. And if you keep looking there in verse 7, we see, So Yahweh formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. That phrase, living creature, is not unique to people only. So if you look down at the bottom of page 20, all living creatures have the breath of life in them and are the living creatures. And you can look up all those texts there. And I, and I read it there actually at the end of Genesis 1. So uh, that ties back into the conversation that we were having last time about uh, death before the fall, not existing before the fall. But trees and plant matter are never described as the living creatures, the Hebrew that's used here. It's only used of birds, beasts, bugs, and bodies, people of, of living creatures. So Adam became, God breathed into his nose and he became the breath of life. Page 21, or he became a living creature rather. Verse, uh, page 21, top of the page. Unlike all living creatures, which God created through speaking, God uniquely formed Adam and breathed the breath of life into him. That's the abrupt change in Genesis 1. And God said, and God said, and God said, and then and God formed Adam. A unique, intimate, personal creation of a father with his son. God formed Adam, breathed the breath of life into him. The creation of man bears some similarity, but is unique and distinct from the creation of all other creatures. So based on the above, there is no textual basis to interpret verse 7 as God breathing the Holy Spirit into Adam. When it says he breathed into him the breath of life and he became a living creature, God gave Adam the lowercase spirit. But there's no textual basis to say that God gave him the capital S Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity. It's, a, it's an important detail to notice in the text. And it has implications for the gospel and the new covenant. And if you hear on last Sunday, the gift that we have in the gospel where God pours out his spirit in a unique way in the new covenant. The spirit was active in the Old Testament, to be sure. But nowhere does the text say that Adam had the Holy Spirit in the same way that new covenant believers do. This was kind of one of the key arguments I made last Sunday. So I want to pause there because we're going to do some theological reflection. A lot of it on this, but we are thinking about to be in the image and likeness of God means that we are embodied. The union of body and soul, hardware and software. Any questions or comments on that biblically before we keep moving forward? Yes, Elder Bo. So uh, maybe some might have the question of, so if we were chosen now as Christians before, and our, we were known before the foundations of the earth, and um, we, when, we, when did we become embodied? And when, you know, because we just described how Adam was formed and was given life. So how does that apply to a Christian now who was known before the foundations of the earth? I'm thinking of Ephesians 1, 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before. Maybe that would help clear up some thought. Um, well, let me take a stab at that and then see if that clears it up. So 
you have the behind-the-scenes portrait in Ephesians 1 of the doctrine of election. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So before anything was made, God had chosen his elect for salvation, behind the scenes. And yet, um, center stage or front stage, as we live our lives, we remain condemned and unsaved until the moment John chapter 3 happens, where the Spirit causes us to be born again, at which point we're made a new creation— and if you think back to last Sunday, because I know it's super fresh in your mind, Ezekiel 36, just memorized, one of the gifts of the new covenant is getting a new lowercase spirit, a new heart, and then God's Holy Spirit. And the portrait there is that's what it means to be born again or to be made a new creation. We actually need to be made brand new in Christ. So um, the, the man who gets saved on his deathbed at 91... At 91, when he repents and believes the gospel of Jesus Christ, in that moment, he becomes a new creation. Thief on the cross becomes a new creation in that moment. Jesus hadn't died and rose yet, but there's some stuff there. But that's, that's my stab. Thanks. I just wondered if anybody else had that thought, just for clearing that up. Thank you. Yeah, good question. I have a question. You mentioned the word soul. Are soul and spirit synonymous? Because I often get confused. Yes and no. Is that helpful? Does that clear up the confusion? We will get to that. We will get to that. But I'll just, just to give a peek ahead, most often those two terms are used interchangeably and sometimes they're set right alongside each other um, as if they're different things or aspects of the immaterial part of us. But... There's a really strong argument to be made in the texts that set them next to each other that it's a um, rhetorical flourish trying to say the whole person. Like we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is just to say all of us. But, but we'll get there. We'll get there. So, I have a question. Sam. Um, so Sam number one. Yeah. You know the verse in the Bible that speaks about how a thousand years is a day to God and a thousand cattle on a thousand hills anyways i'm jumping around there but um if god is is that way where he's outside of time correct yes so wouldn't it be logical then to to make the statement that god would have known us before we were even created and he knows us like ten thousand years from now yeah he, he well he knows all things at once perfectly he doesn't learn anything doesn't gain knowledge or anything like that so yeah he knows that's a crazy thought, that God knows us 10,000 years from now. You should spend five minutes thinking about that. <laughs> so let's, let's go into some theological reflection because this, is, this elicits a lot of questions. But, well, number one, let's, so page 21, we're still there. Theological reflections on being embodied image bearers. Number one, I love this, and I really want you to love this too. Okay, don't read. And even though you already are, you cheaters. Okay, so, so um, God personally makes Adam out of the dust. That, that is amazing. And then he takes Eve from the rib, from his side. She was not a clone. Takes him from his side. And that was so amazing for them to have God personally involved in their creation. Kind of wish it would have been like that for us. Well, that prayer is answered. Look at this. 
God did not just personally create Adam, then Eve, then leave the procreation process to itself. God personally creates every human. Proof text, Psalm 139, 13 through 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame, my body, was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, poetic language. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed from me, when as yet there were none of them. Sam, think about that verse. Do you, do you see what's happening here in this Just as God personally made Adam and personally made Eve, he personally made you. And he personally made every single human being that exists. I think that we have a tendency to become functional deists. Deist is bad. What is a deist? A deist thinks that there is some impersonal creator who spun the globe, got everything kind of going, and then he stepped back and just let all processes unfold by themselves. And so we have a lot of knowledge on on sperm fertilizing the egg and then all the process that goes to see the child grow. But Psalm 139 provides a theological interpretation of what's taking place scientifically or biologically. Namely, God himself makes you every detail every process every moment so one thing you hear me i love saying is that god rules every over every moment molecule and mind in the universe i usually say something about how the blood coursing through your veins and the firing of your synapses and all of those things are superintended by god and yet for some reason a lot of people think deistically that when uh, a child is um, is being formed, is conceived and formed, that somehow that just happens biologically. So the implication there is that all life, every single human, is uniquely precious and exists because God wills it and personally creates it. I shouldn't say it, I should say the person. So that has profound implications that explains why Christians are passionate about all of life, especially the beginning and end of life, both the conception as well as how people are treated in, um, at the end of life, sages at the end of life. Any comments or thoughts on that? Yeah, all people do belong to God. He owns them. And that's why Acts 17 says that God now commands all people everywhere to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I want you, so uh, please spend time thinking about that. Because if you go back to the way the world's view is and the notion of scientific materialism, there is no, from a worldly perspective, inherent value or worth in being a person you're no better than a bug or a beetle 
you're a little bit more useful, maybe, but life is, is not really valuable insofar as a utilitarian perspective that you can be a producer or something along those lines. But if you're going to hinder the progress of human society, away with you. Enter again Nazi Germany and anyone or anything. So this, therefore, adds tremendous value, and we'll come back to this later, to those with Down syndrome. To any person who has any type of so-called deformity or um, any, any problem uh, that they may have physically or mentally, they have all been created by God. And this is why we defend, then, the notion or the importance of conception and the value of that life at conception having just as much value as a life that's carrying that life as well as all of life. So that's profound implications for the uh, abortion debate and more. Next, theological reflection. Number two, I'm going to go after Christians. Neither the hardware or software have priority over the other. Being embodied, that's what it means to be in the image and likeness of God. He created us to be embodied. The union of the physical and the spiritual. Being embodied, God declared at the end of Genesis 1 as very good. This is in direct opposition to both scientific materialist views and neo-Gnosticism, right? The materialist says, body's pretty good, there's no spirit. Neo-Gnosticism says the spirit is more important than the body. But the Bible indicates that it was very good and only very good once it was body and soul. Why is this important? I think most Christians are functional Gnostics on this point. Most Christians, many Christians, at least in the circles and churches that I've run and been in, the challenge is Christians ought not to be functional Gnostics. So you're not going to say you're a Gnostic, you're not going to say it's true, but we live our lives as if, you know, what really matters is, is the spirit and our body means nothing. So we shouldn't be functional Gnostics thinking the spirit matters, but the body does not matter. This is against God's very good design in Genesis 131 when it comes to living for Christ in this world. Now, one reason I think that Christians can function as functional Gnostics, and this was early in my Christian walk, in my college years, reading through Romans, and you start coming across this word, the flesh, the flesh, the flesh, and how bad the flesh is. Well, of course, flesh means skin and bone, so that's got to be the bad part of me. So if I could just be freed from the physical bone musculature and organs, then I will be liberated. That's not what Paul means. That's not how the biblical authors use that word. They use that word metaphorically to describe remaining sin in the life of a person. So this can happen, being becoming a functional Gnostic, is thinking is misunderstanding and misapplying the term the flesh. So there's some text for you. This is the bottom of page 21. There's some text for you where you can see that sometimes, most often, the flesh refers to the physical body. It can refer to animals. It can refer to bodies and more. Or it can refer metaphorically to remaining sin. There's some texts that you can look up. 
Christians ought not to be functional Gnostics thinking that the material body has no bearing on the immaterial soul. And we're going to come back to that. When we come back, or towards the end, if we get through it, maybe next time, the, the union of the physical and the spiritual means that both affect each other. What happens to you physiologically affects you spiritually and vice versa. But if we take a functionally Gnostic perspective, this body doesn't matter, it's all going to burn, I'm going to be buried, and so therefore I need to take care of it. My spirit's what really matters. To treat it like that is actually to do harm to our spirit. Case in point, hangry. How many of you have heard that word before? It's not used as much. Some chuckles. Right? Hungry, angry. Hangry. Where, well, I'm just hangry. So the excuse is, you haven't eaten. So therefore you get super hungry. Right? Your blood sugar levels change. Insulin is low. Other things begin to take place. So you get cranky. Uh, You then begin in your crankiness to lash out, speak differently, and have bad attitudes with those close to you without even realizing or thinking, and it's just, oh, I'm just hangry. That's a stewardship issue. What happened to you physically affected you spiritually, vice versa. Low-hanging fruit is getting drunk or intoxicated or taking drugs or something along those lines. The negative effects is that when you put this uh, a, a physical material into your body, it then changes the way that your mind and heart work, your desires change and more. We are a union still. So even though our bodies are under the curse, we are in the fall, God has never lifted the responsibility of stewardship. Yes, we age and we can't reverse that. You can either change when, you, you cannot lengthen or shorten your life. Hannah sings that God appoints when we live and when we die, all of those things. But none of that negates the notion of stewardship and more. And part of that is actually sanctification. I will argue later that part of your sanctification is good stewardship of the physical aspect of yourself. That's why we shouldn't be functional Gnostics. So that's actually bottom page 21 there. Christians ought to be good stewards of themselves physically and spiritually. Now here's what Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.8. For while bodily training is of some value... Godliness is is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So there is value in both and a priority for personal godliness. But I think what ends up happening with many Christians is it's as if it's only spiritual godliness. And, well, we become aesthetics and just try to buffet our bodies and do different things. To ourselves and more. Here what we're seeing is there's a, there's a priority for both with the priority given to godliness. There's an importance for both. So even though the curse on creation remains in effect. We're going to age. There's sickness. There's disability. The promise of future glory still stands. Scripture nowhere removes the responsibility of stewardship and gratitude for the physical aspect of our lives. So at the same time, the pursuit of health and fitness under the guise of stewardship can be a form of idolatry and pride, the cancer of comparison with others, um, 
nutrition, same thing, and more. But God has determined when he brings us home, 1 Samuel 2, 6, our pursuits of health and fitness can neither lengthen nor shorten the time when God brings us home, but God does use means to accomplish when he will bring us home. So, Christians ought not to prioritize the... Actually, stop it there. That's the next one. So, comments, questions on the argument of not being functional Gnostics. Um, Well, I don't really think... You know, we've been talking about what does the world say here and then what does God say? Um, I think we should give credit where it's due when the world says something good that is in line with uh, the word. Um, I don't even think that the idea of being a functional Gnostic is reasonable from the world's perspective because you have, like, for instance, um, like the AI researchers, they found out that, oh, turns out you need a body to create a conscience, and that's a whole thing. That's why we don't have robots running around like us. So it's it's one of those things where, you know, they'll use conscience, and I know conscience is mentioned later on in here, but because I was reading it. You went far. That's <laughs> impressive. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, um, a lot of times when materialists talk about the soul, they don't want to talk about the soul, so they'll talk about conscience, and that's a thing that they puzzle themselves with. But in that regard, uh, the body is important for consciousness to exist. Um, so that's just what I've been thinking about. Yeah, and that's a great point because the neo-Gnostics, whether it's a Christian functioning like that, because most Christians don't, which is we tend not to think that our brain is important or as important as our soul, whatever that is. That's where that functional Gnosticism comes in. So what I'm trying to do on this first point is elevate your fallen body as an issue of stewardship importance and an essential part of what it means to be you. Now, we'll talk about death in a little bit, but it's, it's really important. And there is the promise of our new glorified bodies. But when Jesus rose from the grave, he still looked a lot like Jesus. He had the scars and, and on himself and more. So, um, so it's an important topic. Good observation. Anything else? Mandy? Um, I just, uh, one of the things I thought of automatically was um, the, a lot of people in the world try to, and in the church, but especially in the world, try to portray things that we do physically with our bodies as having no spiritual or emotional consequences. So, um, uh, you know, drugs is part of that, but pornography and um, sex and things like that as having oh, that's just a physical thing and not having mental and emotional uh, consequences. But the science is actually proving that those things reprogram your brain. So like people that look at porn constantly, their brain gets reprogrammed and there's pathways created that are very difficult to undo if, if it's possible to undo them. And people like prostitutes who are kind of on the extreme end, they, they have literal brain damage from that experience of these physical things not 
you know, not fitting with God's plan. And so it just makes me think of that, of that connection between we cannot separate the things we do physically with our bodies from our minds because they're connected and they influence each other. It's 100% true, and that's one of the lies of the sexual revolution. It really is. Um, one, one of the things that I've deliberately done in this, if you remember at the beginning, um, these are all good, a- excellent points. And when I'm making this, these class notes, I'm confining to myself to Scripture or implications from Scripture and not using social science, biological sciences, or more. But what we see, though, is... Um, Science rightly studied and interpreted confirms what God says in his word uh, and, and more. So that's a good point. Okay, let's move forward. So the middle of page 22, so I just said Christians ought not to be uh, functional Gnostics. Well, in the middle of 22, Christians ought not to prioritize the body over the spirit as functional materialists. So now I'm swinging the pendulum and going to the, the other side. So beyond eating, drinking, and sleeping, this can be seen in priorities at the expense of the spiritual. And that's, that's the point here, is um, living for the desires of the flesh at the expense of what Christ says in his word about what it means to pursue so-called spiritual disciplines, Bible intake, praying, fellowship, gathering with the church, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, singing, praying, the Lord's Supper, seeing people baptized, more. So what can happen is Christians can think that um, those are unimportant, and this can include leisure, travel, hobbies, health, fitness, recreation, and more to a fault. So the counsel here is to discern this would require a person to audit Uh, Where time goes devoted to the enjoyment of this world at the expense of developing personal godliness, self-denial, growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and being a faithful church member. So you have two extremes, focusing on the spirit without any attention to the body, or here, uh, the Christian who just nominally, really in practice, says they're a Christian, but nothing in their life actually demonstrates a devotion or an obedience to those things that Jesus says in his word about what we're to do as Christians and how we grow as Christians. So 1 Corinthians 9 there, I like Paul's analogy. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, it's a crown, But we, an imperishable, so I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body, keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So he uses this this amazing physical analogy of how much effort athletes put into their athleticism and to compete and to win, and and then he's saying, "And, and now do that, apply that to your soul. Any comments or questions on prioritizing, not prioritizing the body over the soul? Yes, up here. Bo is out. Bo, we got a question. Oh, Ben. Ben Bo.
question comes when we abuse our liberty that because I have liberty in Christ, I can do these things. And also for us as a priority, raising our kids, was it more important to be in church on Sunday or was it more important to be at soccer? So values came into play then that, yeah, we should have a godly mindset with the goal of being more Christ-like each and every day. It's a great observation. When I was a youth pastor up in Portland uh, for a stint, uh, I have a, a close friend. She had all of her kids in sports, and so she said, yeah, my kids aren't going to become in a youth group for the next four months. And she said, because they've made a commitment to the team. And I just, I, I pushed on her a little bit and said, well, have you thought about how your kids have a prior commitment to the kids in youth group? And when they're not here, they're missed, both with their love for Jesus and how their young gifting blesses and benefits the other kids and vice versa. And that was just not something that, that she had thought about before. Great observation. All right, let's move forward. So we're thinking about theological reflections. What's the significance that you have a body? Well, more specifically, that God made us embodied a union of hardware and software. Okay, 22, are soul and spirit the same, different, or more? And what does, and when does it enter the body, it being the soul or spirit? Scripture uses many terms across both testaments to describe or refer to the inner person. There's a lot of words. Spirit, soul, flesh, mind, heart, life. Two different ways of physical life and a spiritual life. Conscience, understanding, compassion. It's the word bowels. It's pretty weird. And, and, and there's more. So we tend to think, well, soul and spirit. And we just talk about those two words. But there is an entire constellation of words. That the, that the Bible uses to refer to the immaterial part of you. I love what the Old Testament primarily refers to the inner person as simply the heart. And the heart is the entire um, operating system of us. And it lumps those terms above the concept of the inner person. So... Um, in the Old Testament, the heart thinks because they didn't have, I mean, they did, but um, the heart thinks and more. So just, just the heart. So based on scripture, scholars have debated if a person has two parts, body and soul, slash spirit, meaning soul and spirit are the same thing. That's a dichotomous position, two, die, or three parts, a trichotomous position that the body is physical and soul and spirit. Uh, Dr. John Frame notes that spirit and soul can be, and most often are, used interchangeably in Scripture or are also distinct aspects of the inner person. There are passages where the terms are set alongside one another, but Frame argues this is to emphasize the totality and completeness of a human and not delineate components of human. There's the spirit parts and the soul, soul parts. And he argues, I think persuasively, that this trichotomist view, remember that fancy word meaning body and soul and spirit, is problematic because those who hold this view equate the soul with your intellect and your will and your emotions 
whereas your spirit is your God consciousness. And so when the Bible calls us spiritually dead, just that uh, piece of us, that part of us is the dead part until you're redeemed, right? So again, we talked about earlier, Ezekiel 36, when God puts the new spirit in you and then puts his spirit in you, they're saying that that's when the person comes alive. The reason this is a problem is it places the effects of sin primarily into one part of us, that spirit part. But the Bible places the effects of all sin in all parts of us equally and everywhere. So I, I think it's best to not stumble on this view. It's, I, I don't think it's worth debating. It's best to embrace Scripture's view of the inner heart and outer man body as unified, where the inner man has nuance. We'll see that in a little bit. You have will. You have a desire. You have a conscience and more. But Scripture is not really interested in piecing out and defining every aspect of it per se. And, uh, as I say here, um, Scripture even talks about how your desires and will can be in conflict with each other. So the soul exists from conception. Think back to uh, God creating Adam. The soul exists from conception, for it's an aspect of the total person who exists from conception, similar to the creation of Adam. This agrees with bearing God's image from conception since embodiment, body and spirit, is essential to being an image bearer. What we talked about earlier about God making Adam. This is in contrast to the view that God gives the spirit to a child sometime between conception and birth. This is a view called creationism. So this person is going to say when conception takes place, God may not put the spirit in that child yet, and therefore the child is no good as the lump of dirt that Adam was before God breathed into him. And no one knows when God, there's debate, when God puts the spirit into the child to become a living creature, but it happens between some time between conception and birth. Can you see the problems associated with this, especially as it pertains to abortion? On this unbiblical view, it has been argued that abortion is permissible until God gives the spirit or the soul. But no one knows when God does that on this view. So this view is to be rejected entirely. Because the witness of scripture, like Adam, is he didn't become a living creature until God breathed into him. Questions or comments on soul and spirit, inner person, and more. And the best way to think about us is just heart and body. When one is born again, is his spirit born again, his soul, or both? I think the whole entire human person is born again. It's when Scripture speaks of us becoming a new creation... That Ezekiel 36 language, it's a new heart, new lowercase spirit, and God's spirit. So, so I think all of us is made new, except for our bodies. So Paul says that be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Uh, so when someone leans to sin in many ways after he's been born again, so his soul is still born again even though he has all that sin consciousness. 
yeah, he's still born again. So that's why, that's why you hear me use the phrase remaining sin. Because there's the whole, you know, there's the debate of Romans 7. Is Paul talking about his struggle to sin as a believer or before? Um, I think it's a struggle as a believer. But we all know practically that we wrestle with sin. And that's the remaining sin. Um, but all of us is new. Except for our bodies. Great question, Randy. Any other question before we move on? Yes. Because I often hear people say that we were created to worship something. And I know in Romans, God tells us that, hey, you know that I exist. I mean, look around you. Look at everything. Is not that God consciousness? I, I think so. I think it's an excellent point. So R Romans 1 shows that how every person knows the truth of God and then suppresses it. So that, that's why we're rejecting this trichotomous view because it's, it's saying that just part of you doesn't know that God exists. I'm sure if it, that's, that's probably an unfair to represent it, but yes, Roman 1, I think, obliterates that view, as does the rest of the Bible. Thank you. Good night. And I'd like to know what happened to those who has been aborted. Are they saved? What happened to them? That's a great question, brother. I, I personally hold the view that, especially aborted babies, children who die young all go to heaven. And the textual basis for that, you've heard me say this before, but it bears repeating. For example, when David sins with Bathsheba, their child dies. David says emphatically, I am going to the child, but the child will not come to me. And David was going to the place of comfort, not the place, not, not hell. And so David believed that his uh, child who died because he was sick was in the place of comfort. And... That text, also along with God's character and more, uh, I think gives very strong um, argumentation that, that young children, I don't know what age, but young children, especially those in the womb, go to be with the Lord. Great question. It's a very important question. Well, the next, let's keep going. What happens to our body, soul when we die? Nowhere in the Bible does death mean cessation. I want you to think about that. That in our cultural view and in the pagan view of pagan religions, more modern than not, because most ancient religions believed in some type of afterlife, but the notion of cessation of existence is born out of scientific materialism. There's no textual basis for that idea. When God made Adam and Eve and all people, he has made all people to live forever, and he has made us all to live forever 
embodied. Embodied. So, so what happens when we die? In Scripture, death means separation. And in Scripture, there's two senses of death. Physical death and spiritual death. So, for example, here's physical death. This is talking about what happens in this particular uh, era of redemptive history. Paul makes comment in 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. Physical death for the Christian is, well, actually physical death for any person is temporary cessation. Excuse me. (laughs) Delete what I just said. Scrub backwards, cut it. Read what it says in the words, temporary separation of hardware and software. So for the believer, 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 8, Paul says we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. New King James is a little bit more forceful to be, to be present with the Lord. What Paul's indicating here is that when a believer dies, our heart, our soul, our spirit, the immaterial part of us, is immediately ushered into the presence of God, what we commonly call heaven. Heaven is the intermediate state. Heaven is not the final state. So, right here, very important, physical death, 2 Corinthians 5 To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's how the New King James, that's how I memorized it a long time ago. So when when a Christian dies, we go to be with the Lord immediately. That's the intermediate state. And we do that because, well, Jesus, when he rose from the grave, Ephesians 4, he led a host of captives. The end of Matthew talks about how the, the souls of people who have been buried appeared to many people. You read that before? Go read about the resurrection again in the Gospel of Matthew. Cuddle up with that text. It's quite exciting. When Jesus ascends, he leads all the Old Testament saints with him up to heaven. And when he goes, and the reason he can do that is because, well, when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he died for all of our sins in the past, he died for all of our sins in the present. And he even died for all of our future Christian sins. His atonement is complete, perfect, and final. And that's why Jesus could say, it is done. If Jesus did not atone for every single sin, then he was a liar saying, it is done. So, totelestai, paid in full. So Jesus goes up to heaven. So now the believer then, we have access to the presence of God in the immediate state. And I keep going up because scripture describes heaven as up there, but we know that we can't get into a rocket ship and fly there, so it's up there. Just use that language. Uh, Hebrews 9, 27, and just as it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And then John three eighteen is in here. The reason I have these two verses, I'll explain in a moment. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Notice this is John 3.18, right after famous John 3.16. John 3.18, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, 
But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So, when someone dies not believing, they die condemned, and Jesus himself still describes them as going down into the grave, Gehenna, Hades, Sheol, or hell. They go down to the place of punishment right now. So paradise and punishment. That's, but it's an intermediate state. Spiritual death. Spiritual death is eternal separation from God. And so the gift of the gospel that Jesus gives us is eternal life and union with God. So the unbeliever who dies goes is separated from their body, goes to hell. And then spiritual death means that there's going to be eternally separated from God in hell. So you can read Matthew 25 and then read those texts in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation describes a second resurrection. That second resurrection is for the unbelieving dead. They're resurrected. So resurrection is the opposite of death. Death is separation. Resurrection is the reunion of hardware and software. So for believers, when Jesus brings us back to the new heavens and new earth, when he brings us back to the earth and we return with him, we will have new glorified bodies. Unbelieving dead are resurrected. And then there's that sheep and goat, great white throne judgment. And the goats are now resurrected and embodied. And then hell and unbelievers are put into the lake of fire, which is the second death. So your eternal state is not in a, a disembodied experience floating on the clouds of heaven. Your eternal state in Christ is an embodied existence on this earth, either made new or renewed for eternity, dwelling in the presence of God himself, Jesus also being embodied. So resurrection is reunion. And then everybody is separated eternally. Questions or comments on that brief biblical theology of death and resurrection? I have a, a, a maybe clarify. Yeah, please. Um, so I thought I heard you say, or maybe it was just in, maybe I, this is a lot and I just didn't hear it correctly. That if Jesus didn't atone for every sin, then he is a liar? Yeah. Okay. Jesus provided, sorry, Jesus provides complete, final, and full atonement. All the sins of believers are paid for. That's why he could say it is finished, paid in full. So I know there's, there's all manner of background in here, and that's what you need to know from the text of Scripture. Great question. Oh, what did I say? Did I say something wrong? Yeah, yo, whatever I said wrong, whatever I said was wrong was wrong. You, you just clarified it. So originally, I thought I heard you say that if Jesus, uh, that Jesus died for all sin, not just the believers, as you just clarified. So that's what I, that's the answer I 
was traveling yeah, with. So thank Jesus you for made a perfect, complete atonement for his people. And if it was in the context of Christians, I, I didn't catch that. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank you. Good. Good clarification. Important. Sorry. Uh, my question was, so if we will be dwelling bodily, will we still need to sleep? Or is that an effect of the fall? Like. pure speculation right so we so the language of the bible especially in the old testament is amazing regarding the new heavens and new earth mountains dripping with sweet wine basically it's the garden of eden on infinite steroids if you could say it that way Uh, we remain creatures and creaturely and so it's described with feasting and eating and drinking. You get to eat a lot of bone marrow. That's wonderful. And well-aged wine. Praise the Lord. And so that's what's going to happen. We're going to feast. Um, will we sleep? Uh, probably. Maybe. Speculation. He gives his beloved rest. It reminds us that um, we belong to the Lord and he's, he's infinite and we're not, perhaps. Good question. There uh, is no night around the New Jerusalem because this, the glory of the sun shines. Yes. The text says there will be no night there. I don't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so quick, quick clarification. And I think you could do also fish. I do think there will be oceans. Ooh, I like that. And rivers. Because the river, the, the river of the water of life that flows from Jesus' throne has got to go somewhere. And so if it's not salt water, it's a really great big lake. Sorry. Yeah, no, you're, you're good. Um, so quick clarification. So you've got hell and heaven, right? Heaven is a holding place as hell is. And it speaks in Revelation of like death, Hades, and hell being thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death, the, yes. the eternal death. And then heaven and new Jerusalem come down to earth. Mm-hmm. There's the thousand-year reign. And then after the thousand-year reign, the devil is then thrown into the lake of fire. Flipped that. Yeah, reverse that. So after the thousand year reign is when the new heavens and the new earth comes down, and then that's eternal, right? So that's the the joining of heaven, where people are currently who have died, and the physical earth are both renewed. That's right. Revelation 20, you have the millennium and the various views that that entails. Following that, you have the great white throne judgment. After that judgment, or... Well, script, the text says that uh, there, he, he saw a throne, he sees Christ's face, and then everything disappears, flies away, judgment, and then you have the new heavens and new earth and new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Yeah. Now, uh, Peter talks about everything burning up in a fire, and then there's other texts that seem a little bit more renewal-ish. So there's debate of whether, like, is it going to go poof, gone, and the new creation, because we're dealing with apocalyptic language, or is it a recreation where... where the Grand Canyon will still be here, and Yosemite will still be there. But whatever it's going to be is going to be infinitely better than any of us could possibly imagine. Katie Harmeyer. Um, so with the importance of our physical body along with spirit, how does that play into some debate I've heard about whether or not cremation is right or wrong and like what we do with bodies after we die? So the God in the curse, and when he penalizes Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, as we get the ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in the burial, 
So in the biblical worldview, there is a rich tapestry and theology of, of being buried and returning to the dust. Um, the Bible also speaks about the sea giving up their dead. Um, what do you do about people who have been burned at the stake, beheaded, and more? I mean, there's, there's, there's the, um, God is not hindered um, in reconstituting our bodies and giving us new ones. Some will forcefully argue that the um, cremation um, has ancient pagan roots, which it does. Um, but I think there's freedom, freedom and a conscience issue on this. Of, of what someone would prefer to do because there isn't a you can develop a theology where it's be buried but there is not a text that says it is sinful or wrong to not be buried and to be cremated so it comes down to a, a conscience issue dave before we continue just want to say there's it's a quarter to eight uh, we've not got into tonight's text yet just no, this is, we're actually, this, this is, we're doing good. Perfect. Okay, yeah, this good. is, this yeah. is, a, remember you guys are the guinea pigs. This is the yeah. experimental class. So, okay. we're, so I, I know we weren't going to jump into that. I'm just keeping an eye on time. Thank you. Um, I have several questions. Hopefully some of them are quick. Um, so the first one has to do with that last, I'll be quick. Starting my timer, Mandy. So just kidding. here's the question. I'm assuming like, I mean, our bodies kind of have to be remade, right? Like, um, People who get to the older ages and their bodies are falling apart, like, they're not... I wasn't talking about you. They're not going to be... Like, they are get renewed, right? But Christ, when he was resurrected, had wounds. So were her, his wounds holy and, and, like, special because of why they were there? And is that why they were still there on his resurrected body? I think so. I think it's going to be a beautiful gospel emblem mm -hmm. for eternity. Cool. Okay. That's what I thought. My other question is really important. That's why I'm insisting on asking it. Um, it has to do with hell. Um, I've had multiple conversations with believers about whether hell is eternal or not. Um, and so first question was, I was kind of confused what you were saying, like, believers go to a place of comfort and then after the judgment go to heaven or whatever. And non-believers, is there like, what is the temporary state for them before the final thing? For who? For who which? For non-believers? Hell. Is there so do they state? go immediately into the fire when they die? Or is there like a intermediate? They're, they're, um, they are in the place of punishment, which goes by many names. Mm -hmm. But its final name at the end of days is called the lake of fire. Okay, but it's the same place? Well, Scripture says that death and Hades will be thrown into or cast into the lake of fire. Okay. And that's called the second death. Okay. So are their bodies resurrected immediately after death, or is it is there like a chunk of time before they're resurrected? I, I think their bodies are... It's resurrection right to the throne of Christ, Revelation 20, Matthew 25, okay. and then right into the, their so eternal state. So there's some almost like time travel or something there kind of thing. Well, that's or a maybe that's a whole matter. other question. Okay, more yeah. important, um, what are good scriptural backings to say that hell is eternal? Because that is, I think, important for believers to know whether it's a temporary thing and then everybody gets saved in the end, or if it's eternal. Matthew twenty-five, verse forty-eight. Man, in my eyes. 
6. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Anybody who wants to fiddle with the duration of hell must necessarily fiddle with the duration of heaven. And everywhere that scripture talks about heaven, it, or, or the, our final state, is an eternal state. Jesus gives us eternal life. And Jesus, this is all red letter, speaks in the same way of the duration of uh, heaven as he does of hell. Yes, Bob. Yes. Okay. Is there uh, any difference between the um, Christian who died in sin or without sin? The question is uh, is based on the what we read last week about the Son of God <clears throat> that we can lose the status. Okay. Ask that again. I don't okay. Think I understand. Is there any difference between uh, the Christian who died in sin or without sin? Okay. And that is based in what we read last week, because we're, last week we read that we can lose the status of Son of God. I think that's the uh, the, the age-old Armenian question. I'm yeah. riding my motorcycle, and I've been addicted to pornography, and I biff it, and I go to glory. Am I saved? Am I not saved? Is that kind of what you're asking? Do I Do I lose my salvation if I died in a sin, in an unrepentant sin? A... Christian cannot lose their salvation. And the way to think about being a Christian, we are simultaneously washed by Jesus' blood and simultaneously sinful. We will always have sin until the day that we die. So no so when a Christian dies, they have far more sin in their life than they are even aware of. So, so a Christian cannot uh, lose their salvation. So the, the losing the son of God status was Adam only. And the gospel in Jesus adopts us back into the family of God. We can talk a little bit more about that. That's a, that's a really important question. Thank you for asking that. Yes, last one. Okay, I just need a little more clarification on, so um, we go, when we die, we go to heaven, and that's like our holding place as believers, right? And then there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and we'll be restored to like the new Jerusalem, the new earth. So what is that new heaven? Like, who's there, I guess? Oh, yeah, so it says new heavens. So so the, the picture the Bible gives us is a entire recreation of the universe because the entire universe from the most distant quasar is affected by Adam's sin and ours. So Romans 8, all of creation groans waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. So um, um, the Bible can confusingly speak of heaven in three ways. There's heaven where birds fly, heavens where the stars are, and heaven where Jesus is right now on his throne and all other believers. That's what gets confusing. And then Mormons twist that to have like three different tiers of heaven and godliness. And that, that's not what it's talking about. Flying birds, stars, and where God dwells. Does that help? 
a little bit. And then maybe Revelation 21. Um, this kind of speaks on a lot of what he's been speaking on tonight. We can go back and read a little bit of that. Yeah. It's good. Onward, Christian soldiers, in your notes. There's more. These are a little bit out of order, but that's okay. We're still talking about embodiment. Up top of page 25, what is embodiment for? This is going to be a glimpse of where we're going, but it's important to address now. Because you can take a step back and say, so why? Like you take, go back as far as you can. And the most fundamental question is, why did God do this? God is spirit. And so then why did he create physical stuff? Well, let's keep, let's keep going. What is embodiment for? We'll talk about this later. But A, word-filled worship. We also tend to think that worship is only a spiritual experience. And that our bodies don't matter. Again, an example of being functional Gnostics. But I, this is all rooted. I don't have texts here. But this is all rooted in what God tells Adam and Eve in, to do. For Adam and Eve, had they not sinned, God gives them his word. And then they had a job description in their imaging and likening him to creation. And Adam and Eve's obedience to be fruitful, multiply, fill, and do the earth, exercise dominion would have been word-filled worship. So when Satan comes into the garden, it was a dueling of words, God's word or Satan's lies. And so we are embodied for word-filled worship. God and all of his grand gospel designs wanted a physical universe in which he would dwell embodied in Christ and indwell his embodied people. So we talked earlier about Ephesians 1, how God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. What was the Trinity doing before creation and when he chose us? God's plan from the beginning, I believe, has been the gospel. That God the Son would become incarnate, truly God and truly man, dwell among us, and last Sunday's sermon die and rise and pour out God's spirit who would also indwell us. The paraclete, remember that? And the two paracletes seeing Christ face to face, able to hug him or be hugged by him, as well as indwelt by the spirit himself. So the gospel design is God to be embodied in the person of his son, indwell us, his people, for eternity. That's, that's, that's why anything exists. And think about that. It's pretty amazing. And also, this embodiment, just creation itself, a physical world, especially the sixth day with Adam and Eve, we're told, remember all the previous days, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. Day six, it was very good. God, simply put, God is glorified in what he has created. And so God created a physical world for his glory chief of which is becoming embodied, redeeming, dying, living, dying, and rising for lost sinners, saving us, and then putting his spirit in us also. So, so put this differently, 
the material world exists for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Questions or comments on that, Randy? Those were pretty interesting comments, and the physical realm is very important. Otherwise, God himself would not have entered into it and put on the physical. That's a great point, brother. They sinned. He could have just blown it all up and gone back to being exquisitely happy within himself. Really good point. Okay, so why? what is, what is your embodiment for? Word-filled worship and representation. So imaging the likeness. Bodies are for physically imaging the invisible God. You, you have a body so that as a believer in Jesus, you can physically image the invisible God. This includes representing and reflecting his character, how he relates to others, his creativity, and more. So you are embodied so that you would represent the triune God. That's why you have a body. What are bodies for? Procreation. Bodies are designed to make babies. In the context of marriage, in order to perpetuate both God's creative work. Remember Psalm 139, how God knits in the womb. And population in order to obey the creation mandate so humans were told from the beginning be fruitful multiply fill and subdue the earth so one of the reasons we have bodies is pro creation that word's important because it captures it's the old school word that captures that god is still active in the creative process of bringing new life just as he was with adam and eve and you and finally what are bodies for vocation so vocation is an old, um, it's an old word for work, but calling. Bodies are designed to cultivate to flourishing the physical world and human society, including arts, technology, culture, government, and on you could go. This is the exercise, dominion, and subdue portion. Chief among these... For our vocation as Christians is the great commission carried out in the context of the local church. So you have the creation commission, Genesis chapter 1. Word-filled worship, procreation, vocation. Uh, fill the earth, create society, worship God. But now in Christ, we also have the great commission. Creation commission and great commission and we now are also filling and subduing the earth a different way. That is seeing the lost saved, the death come to life. People come from darkness to light and born again into the kingdom of God and gathered into sheep pens called churches and until he returns. And that's why we have bodies to do these things. So having a body comes with a job description and, and we'll see this. But in order to fulfill the job description, we have to have a body. Any questions on what embodiment is for? Mandy. Is the question about what is what embodiment is for? 
Okay. Yeah. Be sure. Right. Poor um, Mandy. What would you? I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you for putting up with me. Um, what would you say to people who argue that the world is overpopulated and you should stop having babies? They don't know what they're talking about. Okay. From a biblical perspective. From a biblical perspective, and then not to bring sociology into it and geopolitics, but they don't know sociology or geopolitics. And they're sinning by disobeying the creation mandate, which is still upon all people, and they need to repent of that because they're going to be punished for that also if they don't know Jesus. Yeah, we're not overpopulated. That, uh, that's a whole different conversation. But thank you for asking that. Um, yeah, no. Okay. Any other questions or comments on what embodiment is for? So we ran through that. We're going to spend a lot more time in it. But I encourage you to go back through it because you just got your job description of why you exist. And so you can then look at word-filled worship, representation, procreation. There's qualifications to that. And vocation. That, that is the, um, a fourfold description of what it means to actually... Uh, do the image of God and likeness of him. We have to do stuff. Okay, moving forward. What are emotions? Don't look at your notes. If you did, don't cheat. What are emotions? Interactive time. Complicated? So seriously though, how would you... I need someone to define emotion. Okay, Hannah. The lens at which we perceive the world around us. The lens with which we perceive the world around us. Interesting. Good stab at it. So it would be perception... Okay. Good option. Family. Oh, family. This is a family thing. You know. She, she's you right. You're wrong, family. Sam. No. Uh, the most obvious one is how we feel about things. Okay, define feelings. Um, angry. Good. I feel good. I feel happy. I feel sad. That's a description of feelings. But what is a feeling? Oh, no. <laughs> it's an emotion. When you get, I mean, it was seriously, like if you look this up, it becomes a, a circular, what, define emotions, feelings. What's a feeling? It's an emotion. And then usually you get the description. It's, it's really hard to define. And it's one of those weird things because we can all know what feelings are, some more than others. But we have feelings, excuse me, emotions. Uh, if you want to, um, I'm putting some little biograph or uh, books you can check out. There is a book called Untangling Emotions by those guys, and uh, it's a good one to, to to check out. Do you have no? No. Okay. So, um, let's think about emotions. Men, let's think about emotions. <laughs> a predominant trait of men, yes. Actually, um, so God has given his image bearers the capacity to feel, to have emotion, because God is perfect and complete in his emotion. He is perfectly love all at once, for example. 
So what we need to recognize is that emotions are not a result of the fall, but a result of being the image of God and therefore good. So emotions were before the fall. I think that when God brought his naked wife to or Adam's naked wife to him in the garden and Adam said this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh I don't think it was a guy punching on the calculator this is bone of my bone I think that guy felt something emotions so emotions existed before the fall excuse me that was Genesis 2 um, yet emotions are affected by sin and the fall and therefore must be renewed in Christ Scripture does not explicitly define emotions. Instead, it depicts them. Joy, anger, fear, sorrow, peace, guilt, shame, anxiety, pleasure, and on and on the list goes. There's many things that we feel. Implicitly, Scripture appears to indicate that thoughts or beliefs drive emotions which then direct attitudes and behaviors. So um, thinking then drives, so notice I'm going from mind to heart. Thinking then goes to the heart, and then that determines our attitude and, be, and behavior. So the reason I say that is Romans 12, 1 and 2, that the transformation through the renewing of your mind, or in Ephesians 4, 21 and following, Put off the old self, be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on Christ. Both of those, in Paul's texts, he's beginning with what we think or what we believe, but it's also vice versa, because then it's, uh, it's like a firestorm where there seems to be a priority given to thinking that leads to behaving or feeling, but then the feeling reinforces the thinking, and so then it just becomes a tangled mess. So it's kind of a a little bit of a chicken and egg, but it looks like thinking is first. So emotions appear to just happen to us for good or bad. I think if you sit down and begin to think through the emotions that you feel, it's a fairly passive experience. And some type of stimuli needs to take place or something to evoke anger or to evoke anxiety or shame or guilt or something along those lines. They tend to happen to us. Emotions, by definition, are subjective, meaning they begin internally, they're personal, and they're intuitive. So, Hannah, that kind of goes back to when you said maybe perceiving the world a little bit, how you intuit. That's an interpretive word, so it's usually associated with thinking, but remember the Hebrew way of thinking about things, it's all about just your heart. You think with your heart. Emotions often work against our will. I don't want to feel this way, but I do. And no matter what you do to try to change the way that you're feeling, uh, even trying to change your thinking, your, your feelings still stay a certain way. Or I wish I felt this way, but I don't. So a lot of times we feel like that we're captive by our emotions. Here's a quote. Biblically, the question of whether emotions originate in the mind or the body isn't the central issue. Instead, the Bible places the focus on how emotions facilitate or impede our role as God's image bearers. 
helping us love him and love one another or hampering us from loving him and loving one another. Our emotions in all their dimensions, body and mind, are meant to function together in a way that serves God's purposes. And in that context, the Bible speaks to us as essentially unified persons who were created with minds and bodies designed to work together seamlessly in our image-bearing tasks. So what do then emotions do? This is from that book I mentioned. Emotions communicate what we value or love, rightly or wrongly. So often we're passive to our emotions and maybe not necessarily paying attention to them, but, but your emotions are attached to values. What you care about or love or hate or fear or desire or lust or covet, etc., what you care about shapes how you feel. Your emotions are always expressing the things that you love, that you value, and that you treasure, whether you understand them or not. So anger, at least righteous anger or sinful anger, is usually because something arises because something that you love, value, or treasure was either taken from you or hurt or something along those lines. Um, Oftentimes, if we're willing to sin to get something, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, the raise, sin to get that thing or that person, or willing to sin not to lose that person, we've turned that person or thing into an idol, but it shows that what we're treasuring most is that person or thing and not, not Christ. So pay attention to your emotions and you're going to see what you value. Emotions help us connect or disconnect with others, also rightly or wrongly, and they reveal our hearts. Emotions serve as an invisible glue or a gauge of relationships of all kinds. So um, you can't have friendship without emotions. We, we, we are emotional creatures, And we feel our feels to different capacities in different ways, but we relate to each other. We enjoy each other and things along those. So emotions, God designed emotions for our relationship. They help us connect or disconnect. So there I have in mind, um, you have a family feud going on. You have um, vengeance. You don't like somebody or something along those lines. And so your negative emotions about that person cause you to disconnect from them. Emotions motivate or demotivate us in every aspect of our lives. So you get up and you get out of bed for, in the morning for some reason. And there's a motivation there. And in that motivation is, is emotion. It could be a sense of duty or something along those lines. But... Emotions motivate or demotivate us. Emotions turn us toward or away from God. Emotions are an integral aspect of worship, whether of God or idolatry. We're to worship God with all of our heart. Do you see the words there? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. So there you have that picture of physical and spiritual, hardware and software, But part of that software, the heart and soul, is our emotions. 
So in other words, we worship God as embodied beings with our whole being, material and immaterial, minds and hearts, knowledge and affections. Emotions are complex and often mixed, many of them traffic together as a package, and it can be difficult to identify what you're feeling or why you're feeling it, which leads to frustrations and communication breakdowns and more. Ultimately, every emotion reflects our worship. That is, the loves or commitments of our hearts. But sometimes our worship is off. We love the wrong thing, or maybe we love the right things in the wrong way or too much. Not everything we feel flows from a value of what God loves. But every point on our whole spectrum of emotions was designed to send us sprinting to God our Father with words like, Thank you, help me, you're amazing, or oh no. No feeling is beyond redemption. Every feeling that turns toward God actually becomes a part of worship. So it's important to recognize that as we are embodied, we have emotions. And it's important to recognize what they are. Any comments on emotions? We're still going to talk about whether you should follow your heart or not. Okay, so I have a question. Yes. Um, Just to affirm the aspect, just a comment um, of how influential emotions are on us. Um, We tend to like to think, you know, since the Enlightenment, uh, which was a kind of bad period for a lot of reasons, um, we're like, oh, we don't need emotions. We can be rational. Um, And that's kind of the scientific materialist, uh, Sam Harris view. Let's be rational and come to morality through rationality. Um, and there's this saying, um, you know, there's the, the Ben Shapiro saying, um, facts don't care about your feelings, but I think that's actually kind of wrong. <laughs> and we're learning that feelings don't care about your facts. And that's a hard thing for me to deal with, um, is that the way to people is often through their emotional pathway. That's a really good point. And another good point is I realized that I thought class ended at 8.30, but it ended 13 minutes ago. I am sorry for keeping you guys over. Let me close this in prayer, and I'm happy to take any questions you guys have. We will pick up. So I want you to think about this question. Should we always follow your heart? See the book reference. Don't follow your heart. Lord, thank you for making us embodied. And we thank you for the gift of bodies, even in this fallen world. We thank you for the complexity and wonder that we are. And we thank you amazingly, Father, that you personally and actively created us, knitted us together in our mother's wombs, and here we are. So, Lord, thank you for the gift of salvation in Jesus and making us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.